Hello and welcome to Bite-Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I'm Nick, your host. Today's episode is about a shipwreck. And it's one of those classic stories that, you know, kids love to hear. It's, uh, you know, right in the middle of the, the age of piracy, the blue waters of the Caribbean. What we're talking about is a Spanish treasure ship that was just loaded with gold and silver and other valuables that went down to the bottom of the Caribbean in 1641. The ship we're talking about is the Nuestra Señora de la Concepción. And I say Concepción like with the TH instead of Concepción because um, like I'm using the Castilian Spanish, uh, which I think would have been spoken by a lot of the people on the ship at that time. Castilian is basically Old World or Spain Spanish versus New World or, you know, Mexican or Colombian or, or Peruvian Spanish, uh, stuff like that. But anyway, that's a little uh, digression. But very, very cool story. I'm going to tell you the story of this ship and just... <laughs> how things went from bad to worse and then it sank and there was the question of like what was going to happen to all this gold and silver and this was at you know the peak of the spanish imperial power so without further ado let's get started today on bite-sized history To kick things off, first let me tell you uh, a little bit about the ship itself. So <laughs> there's kind of a naming tradition for Spanish ships. First of all, uh, Spanish names for, for people and places and stuff tend to be very long and elaborate. So in the intro, I said it's the Nuestra Señora de la Concepción. The full name was the Nuestra Señora de la Pura e Limpia Concepción. I, I think I pronounced that correctly. but. Um, it, it basically means like Our Lady of the Immaculate Conception. Um, and if that strikes you as a religious name, it's because it is. Uh, a lot of like the Spanish ships of this time period, because Spain was such a fiercely Catholic society, Roman Catholic, um, they always had religious names. And this would continue, you know, through the ages, even like 150 years later. Uh, during the Napoleonic Wars, I believe one of the biggest Spanish ships uh, at uh, the Battle of Trafalgar was the Santissima Trinidad, which basically means, like, I think the sacred or saintly uh, trinity. Um, and now this is different from, for example, English ships. Uh, English ships, their naming was kind of all over the place. So, like, sometimes they'd have names from antiquity, like uh, the Ajax or the Agamemnon. Sometimes they would be named after monarchs, like the King George or the Elizabeth. Sometimes they would just have general nature names, like this one is the Sparrow or the Eagle or, or something like that. Um, so just to give you a little bit of context. Now, it was a 600 ton uh, now, um, and I say now, like N-A-O. Uh, that's basically another word for uh, caravel. Like there were ships of this period, caravels and carracks were uh, closely related and depending on how many decks and how many guns and how many sailors and stuff like that you had um, ships called galleons and um, when people think of the pirate age the Caribbean uh, stuff like that they tend to think of galleons uh, you know even in Pirates of the Caribbean you can see these ships so it was built in Cuba in La Habana which is Havana 
Uh, but it was fitted and armed in Spain. And this would make sense, you know, because at this time period, a lot of the arms industries and stuff like that were still in Spain. Now, there was a major port city in uh, southern Spain. That region is called uh, Andalusia or um, Andalusia or Al-Andalus in, in Arabic. Uh, there's a port there called Cadiz. And during this period, uh, Cadiz and Seville, so Cadiz and Sevilla, were hugely, hugely involved in kind of this new world uh, exchange of goods and services and people, stuff like that. So it was built in 1620. And as I teased in the intro, the shipwreck was in 1641. So it really wasn't that old when it went down. Uh, later on, they reinforced the decks and they added uh, castles. So like, just like little structures fore and aft. So when you see ships of this period and there's like, you know, imagine the deck, uh, and then there's like a kind of square structure coming off the back, almost like a little house. Uh, that's called a castle. Uh, and then if you have one in, in the front, uh, it's kind of the same thing. The front is the four, and that structure that comes out is the castle, so four castle. But in uh, British, English kind of naval jargon, it's been shortened over the years to folksal. So when people talk about a folksal, that's what they're talking about. Anyway, they equipped it with 40 bronze cannons, uh, bronze being more resistant to seawater. So uh, a big ship, big heavy ship with a lot of guns. Um, and the Spanish, again, they were kind of well known for this. Uh, I think in, in this time period and in the uh, decades to follow, the, the English preferred to have maybe quicker, maybe lighter ships, stuff like that. But for the Spanish, it made sense, you know, like it was such a, a arduous journey across the Atlantic. You wanted to bring back as much gold and silver. And let me tell you about the gold and silver. Like this was the height of Spanish plundering of the New World. So they, they weren't just taking, extracting gold and silver from all of the native groups that they had either conquered or assimilated or were still currently fighting in places like uh, Mexico and Colombia and Peru and stuff like that. By this time, they had started mining. Um, so they would have native slaves, uh, black slaves, and bring them over. And they were just extracting at breakneck pace all of these uh, precious metals from the New World. Now, what they would do is they would load all of this treasure on ships bound for Spain. But because there were so many pirates, Pirates were murderous thieves and robbers, uh, killers that prowled the Caribbean. Uh, you know, they were criminals, basically. Like, they, they would prey on these treasure ships. Every now and then, you would get a pirate, but they had, like, an official commission from a king or a queen to plunder enemy vessels on behalf of the government, the crown of their nation. Now, those were called privateers. And that document that allowed them to do this was called a letter of mark. But anyway, so like if you were kind of, quote, semi-legit, you were a privateer. But if you were like full criminal, you were a pirate. So anyway, the Spanish uh, found out pretty early on that it just wasn't a good idea to send ships by themselves. So they would uh, gather, they would collect all of these treasure ships into treasure fleets and they were big, they were slow, but they were heavily armed. Sometimes they would have escort vessels. And that was pretty much the purpose of this ship, the Nuestra Senora. And um, in the next segment, I'm going to kind of 
start to tell you a little bit of the, the story of how things got rolling. Okay, so I mentioned that this ship, the Nuestra Senora, left Cadiz, Spain. Now, this happened on April 24th of 1641, left Cadiz as Capitana of the New Spain fleet. Uh, Capitana is like the, the lead ship or, or the, the command ship or the, the flagship of this fleet. Very interesting. Um, on board was the new viceroy, so the royal representative uh, ruler of Mexico, this dude, uh, the Duke of Escalona. Now, again, I mentioned Spain was a fiercely Catholic society at this time, very, very religious. He carried with him a bunch of holy relics, and uh, one of them he believed was a thorn from the crown of Christ. And another one was a finger of St. Andrew. So just interesting stuff uh, that, you know, the treasures on this boat were not just, you know, material treasure. They, they had relics. Now, it arrived safely in Veracruz, uh, where they stayed one year. And uh, there was some minor damage that was, that was suffered in the harbor. And it wasn't repaired yet. And the officers of this ship were saying, oh, hey, like, we got to repair this boat. But the king of Spain, Philip IV, he needed money to fight a war against the Dutch and the French. In this time period, like the 1500s, the 1600s, it's insane. Like, everybody, all of these uh, emerging colonial powers were at war with everybody else. So... In the 1500s, uh, you had conflict between France and England, uh, Spain and England. In the 1600s, you had conflict between, there was the Anglo-Dutch wars, like a series of war between the Dutch and the English. Um, there were wars between uh, Spain and the Dutch, uh, Spain and France, like it just, it was insane. And the Caribbean, because you had like all of these little islands that, uh, one of the main things that made them so profitable was sugar. Like sugar was becoming more and more important in European society. Uh, a lot of the waterways were clogged up with competing merchant vessels, competing naval vessels, pirate ships, privateer ships, um, just this huge exchange of goods and services and peoples and ideas from the old world to the new. So anyway, Philip, he needs money for this uh, this war, and the ship does manage to get repaired, but it was a rush job. And at this point, it sailed as the Almiranta. The thing you need to remember is when this boat left, <laughs> this boat, this ship left Veracruz, it was actually overloaded. Um, it was carrying a lot of treasure for the king, but also unknown quantities of treasure uh, on behalf of private individuals. So like wealthy landowners, uh, royal representatives, merchants, uh, stuff like that. And a cool thing too, is that not all of this was um, actually new world treasures. Uh, so a lot of the stuff from the new world, it was mostly, you know, bars and bars and coins and coins of silver and gold, stuff like that. But there was also treasures from the, the valuables from the Far East. And you might think like, oh, like, how is that possible? Well, at the time, Spanish merchants and stuff had made it to the Far East. And they were buying and selling and buying and selling very, very busy. And all of their goods went to the western coast of Mexico, to the port of uh, Acapulco. And then they'd be unloaded and transported over land to Veracruz 
which was their point of contact with the old world, with ports like uh, Cadiz and uh, uh, Seville, because the only other option, like the Panama Canal didn't exist yet, was to like literally sail south, 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 across, you know, past Chile, across the southern tip of South America, then up by Brazil. Like it was just super long, it, you know, it was kind of a, a shortcut. So what did they get from the Far East? Uh, very valuable stuff like indigo. Indigo was a dye. Uh, it was a plant that was like crushed and processed to make a blue dye. Uh, silks, spices, uh, porcelain, and jade. And these were all things that you couldn't make or find in Europe. And um, the vast majority of them you couldn't make or find in the New World either. Like it was really, really special stuff. But uh, I just thought that was kind of cool because, you know, like when you hear about this shipwreck, you're like, oh, like you think all just like gold and silver coins. But it's just cool to remember that there's also treasures from all over the world, uh, things that Europeans, most Europeans in this time period had not even seen. Maybe they had heard, you know, legends about it and stuff like that. Okay, so the Nuestra Senora leaves Veracruz, makes its way to Havana. There's kind of a little bit of waffling back and forth, some repairs, then it goes out to sea a little bit, but then it's forced back for repairs, stuff like that. At this point, it's September, and the captain, Juan de Villavicencio, is, uh, he's getting antsy, but at the same time, he's stressed because he's like, ah, I don't think you know, this ship is, is in perfect shape yet. Uh, and he actually asked for more time and money for more repairs, but, uh, the powers that be above him said, no, it's, it's time to go. You gotta go. Um, so the ships leave and they, they start heading east, uh, and then, you know, eventually, uh, north because that's kind of the general direction of Spain. Now Havana is in Cuba. Uh, it was a Spanish colony at the time, and then east of it is this big island. And now it's the, the two countries of Haiti and Dominican Republic. Now at the time, it was called Hispaniola, this island. So they're sailing across the, the, the Caribbean Sea, uh, doing their best to avoid pirates and, and stuff like that. Um, but pirates of any kind would have to be very careful to assault such a heavily armed treasure fleet like this like you'd have to be either really good or really bad to, to try something like that but they run into a storm and there's a huge wave like uh that swamps the deck and this just kept happening they they keep getting battered by these huge waves but there was one wave that was that was bigger than all of the other ones and water started coming in through the portholes and after getting hit by a bunch of these waves the uh ship started to split now the caulking that's like holding and solidifying and pretty much keeping all of the timbers of the stern in place start to split uh for a ship you got the bow and the stern like the stern's the back and the bow's the front so anyway just picture this big treasure galleon loaded with stuff in a storm and the timbers at the back are starting to split and come apart. The sailors, like, they did have pumps, and they're working these pumps furiously, like these hand pumps, to try to get water out of the lower decks. And at this point, the passengers start to get a really bad feeling, and they start praying to a statue of the Virgin Mary that was uh, bolted to one of the decks. 
Um, <laughs> now, the thing is, it's just a crazy thing because imagine you're, it's like, oh, this is looking really bad. You're in a desperate situation. So you start praying to the statue. Well, what happens? More waves keep hitting it and the statue comes loose. It's like ripped off the deck. The bolts come loose and then it's swept out to sea. So again, if you're like really religious people, like these Spanish people, and the sea literally takes away your statue of the Virgin Mary. It's just not a, it's not a good sign. So at this point, morale starts to uh, plummet. The masts, like the mast is that huge vertical beam of wood that holds the sails. Like those snapped. Um, two anchors got lost at sea. Three of their lifeboats and a lot of uh, goods that were stored on the deck were swept out to sea. And some people. You know, like if you, if you, not everybody on this ship was a sailor. If you weren't careful, you didn't have your sea legs or you didn't know how to like roll with the waves. Or even if you just for a split second had bad footing in a storm like this, you get swept out to sea. And there was just nothing. There was just nothing that could be done to save you. Now the fleet gets dispersed and at least three ships sank. And at this point, the position of the uh, Nuestra Senora, they, the, even the pilots, like the helmsmen, uh, don't really know where they are. But they manage to kind of patch together a primitive sail, like jury rig it together, on one of the damaged masts. And the decision was made by the captain, uh, Juan de Villa Vicencio, and these two helmsmen, uh, Bartolome Guillen and Matthias Destevan Arte, they decide to sail south in search of Puerto Rico or the Bahamas, um, because uh, according to their rough knowledge of where they were, they, they thought that, okay, well, this is our best chance of survival. Now, they hit a reef about 60 miles north of Hispaniola, which is that big island I told you about a few minutes ago. Like, today it's Haiti and Dominican Republic. Um, this kind of wrecked, it, it's not wrecked yet. Like it's its almost like a drifting hulk at this point, like heavily damaged. Like I said, they patch together a kind of sail and they're, they're throwing all sorts of stuff overboard. They're throwing over their cannons, their artillery pieces. So now you're like, uh-oh, like if pirates show up at this point, they're they are finished, they're done for. Like their, their masts and their hull are not in any condition to outrun the pirates and they're throwing over their their guns, like their weaponry, um, you know, so it, it just makes it all the more desperate. So they're praying that they, they don't see pirates. The reef that they hit um, rips the bottom of the, the ship apart, uh, which I believe is called the keel. Now, the stern, like the back part, gets trapped between two huge formations of coral. So now <laughs> you've got the ship, and like I said, the, the deck is damaged, the anchors are gone, the mast is destroyed, the keel is ruptured, the stern is now caught. Um, the decision was made, they had a lifeboat, and the decision was made, they took 32 of the most important people. So like rich people, highly ranked officers, including uh, the captain, Via Vicencio, 
uh, which is kind of crazy. You know, I thought the captain was supposed to go down with the ship, but who, who knows? Maybe the tradition in this time was different. They set out on this single longboat and uh, they go four days to the south until they saw the west of Puerto Plata, but nobody was there. It's It was just like a little settlement. So they continued navigating until Monte Cristi and then they were taken to Santiago and then to Santo Domingo. So, all right, they made it. They're, they're safe. They're good to go. The rest of the people... Um, they made these like rafts by lashing together timbers and kind of whatever they could. And two of the biggest rafts followed the direction that was taken by that longboat with the, the rich people and the officers. And um, they got wrecked in the ocean. Uh, they got wrecked. Uh, they wanted to reach Puerto Rico. Now the other six rafts sailed uh, to the south and some of them made it to the north coast of Hispaniola. And that wasn't everybody. Now, there was a small party. There were 25 men that stayed on the ship, okay? And they were going to live in that little structure uh, in the back of the ship, like the stern castle. And they unloaded part of the gold and silver and put it on the reefs to um, make it easier to pick up later. It was kind of like, all right, you guys... You stay here, guard the gold and silver, we'll be back. Uh, and we'll see in a minute what happened. So what happened to these 25 guys that were guarding the gold and silver? Well, after a while, they decided to make a break for it. I mean, it's... They were losing faith that anybody was going to show up and they did what they were told like they guarded it as long as they could so they built their own raft and uh set out set out you know and they actually had the least idea of the three different waves of you know people escaping this ship because there were people that died in the storm and then there were people that got away on that long ship and then there were the first two rafts and then the six rafts and then there's the raft of these guys and according to this source i mean it's uh, only one of them ever reached dry land out of 25 uh there's one source that says that um half of the 490 men that sailed from havana uh died and then there's another source that says that um there's a different number, 490. This one claims there's 532, and that only 194 of them ever survived this this journey. So, uh, lots of, lots of people, lots of souls went down uh, throughout the voyage of this ship. So, what happened? Um, the Spanish did try to recover the treasure, but they were not successful for a variety of reasons. And uh, 45 years later. There's this guy, uh, Captain William Phipps. He's uh, he's funded by a rich man named the Duke of Albemarle. And uh, Captain William Phipps decides that he's going to try to find this treasure. And he does. And they recover more than 25 tons of silver and some gold. Now, he had made a previous attempt, uh, supported by King George II, uh, but he didn't find anything, and, and it kind of wrecked his reputation for a little while. And he eventually did find it a few years later. And it's crazy, because like part of this was divers, and 
the first four divers of his recovery team worked for 40 days using only breath power, <laughs> which is just insane. Like they were holding their breaths and looking for this. Now, eventually they deployed like a, like a tub, uh, which was basically just like a, a large diving bell um, in order to try to search for this thing. And, and once you found the coins and, and the treasure and stuff to try to collect it, um, the silver that he got uh, made it to England in a ship called the James and Mary. And, you know, he was kind of lifted by the success. He returned to the site the following year and he came across small boats that were coming and going. Now, there were locals who were also trying to find this, this treasure and uh, and kind of take it for themselves because what had happened was like if if you stack the gold and the silver eventually the the chests on the reefs were destroyed and remember when i said uh, you know the the keel was ruptured and the stern was coming apart and the masts were snapped uh cargo like picture this ship just like drifting through the ocean kind of shedding like dropping treasures as it's going as the ship is disintegrating and that kind of goes a long way towards explaining like why there were treasures over such a, a wide like a a large area anyway so this guy phipps um when I first read the article, um, I thought he was actually English, but no, he was born in Maine. And because of his successes in finding all of this lost treasure, he was knighted and he became the first American uh, to receive a knighthood, which is very interesting. Now, he later became the governor of Massachusetts in 1692, uh, which was the year of the Salem trials. So that's just a little interesting tidbit. Uh, and he died at the age of 44. So, you know, he had a number of, uh, you know, unlucky adventures in life. And he actually died in prison in London at the age of 20, uh, 44, sorry. Now, over the years, over the centuries, uh, since then, you know, not all the treasure was found. So there were countless, like, treasure hunters that would research this voyage, uh, you know, plot out the course, kind of speculate where everything would be. Even in the 20, uh, 20th century, like, there was an expedition in 1952. Then uh, there was a gentleman, Ed Link, he tried in 1958. Jacques Cousteau tried in 1968. But it wasn't until 1978 that it was found by Burt Weber and Jack Haskins. Now, they were with uh, a group called Sequest International Incorporated. And they actually, they actually reached an agreement um, with the government of the Dominican Republic who, who gave them a license to... Um, kind of find and and uh, profit from this uh, shipwreck and in in the course of this um, they found 13 additional shipwrecks that were that uh, they discovered in the process of hunting the Nuestra Senora this area was called the Silver Bank because actually it was kind of right on the shipping route from Veracruz to Cadiz Spain so like it was not uncommon for Spanish treasure ships to go down uh, in this area, um, either because of natural causes, like there were reefs, uh, coral reefs, uh, geological formations, because it was a heavily trafficked sea lane that was just flush with gold and silver, it's going to attract pirates. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, kind of a dangerous place. Now, this ship, um, even today, there's still people that kind of look for it. And it's, it's interesting because like, it it's called the silver bank or the silver shoals and over the centuries locals have told stories of like oh you know 
Uh, you might just find a silver coin in in the the shallow blue water around there. So it's kind of like a a legend of of treasure, you know, uh, uh, to find a a glittering piece of eight. A uh, piece of eight was uh, like a name for Spanish coins at the time. I kept talking about how this ship was a treasure ship and uh, I kind of went into a little bit of detail, you know, your gold and silver and then your treasures from the east, uh, indigo, silk, spices, porcelain, jade, stuff like that. But according to this article, uh, I wanted to go into a little bit more detail uh, as to what was actually discovered by these expeditions on this ship. So they found three astrolabs. Uh, that was a navigation uh, tool for sailors of the time period. They found uh, goblets made of metal and wood, uh, vials of perfume, mortar and pestle, wooden combs, uh, earthenware, uh, all sorts of like uh, residues of food products. They found bones of cows, fish, pigs, birds, turtles, and manatees. Uh, I didn't even know people ate manatees at the time, but I guess they did. Uh, bottles, silverware, silver spoons. Now, as for the coins, uh, they found a ton of coins called reales, and they dated from 1600 to 1641, including a lot of these uh, classic pieces of eight. That's like the classic uh, pirate coin. Uh, these coins were minted in places like Cartagena, Santa Fe, Mexico, and Potosi. About three quarters of these coins were actually made between 1639 and 1641. And if the ship went down in 1641, it meant that three quarters of the coins were newly minted. And I think that that hints a little bit about all of this new treasure coming out of the new world. Um, they found 40 copper coins uh, that were actually made in Spain. That was pretty rare. Uh, some of the coins were made in 1621, 1622 in Cartagena and Santa Fe. And those were also uh, very rare um, because they had thought that they, these places, Santa Fe and Cartagena, only started making coins later. But by finding these coins, they were able to push the date back a little bit. Uh, they found musical instruments, uh, Things like, just like little trinkets of everyday life, like snuff boxes, uh, candle holders, uh, signet ring, uh, stuff like that. Um, they did find uh, some of the artillery pieces, uh, musket shot, uh, lead musket. They found the hilt of a rapier. Uh, rapier was like a classic sword of the period. It's not like a, it's not like a broad, long, heavy medieval sword. Uh, a rapier is like a one-handed, a kind of like a musketeer sword, you know, like the three musketeers, stuff like that. So they, it's kind of like all together, you can see that this thing was just loaded uh, with, with treasures. And that is the story of the Nuestra Señora de la Concepción, uh, which went down in the Caribbean in 1641. Most of the information uh, for today's episode came from an entry in the Nautical Archaeology Digital Library. There's an entry there for this ship by Ricardo Barrero and Felipe Castro. 
And another thing I wanted to clear up before we wrap up is that this name, Nuestra Señora de la Concepción, is... Uh, <laughs> there was more than one treasure ship that went down with that name. So when you try to do research, it's a little confusing. Uh, like, for example, there was one uh, ship of the same name that went down almost the same time. It went down uh, in 1638. It was also a treasure ship uh, and, it, and it had the same name, uh, but it went down in the Pacific. Uh, then there was another one um, in the next century in 17. 15, another one, another Nuestra Señora de la Concepción. This one went down uh, near Florida. So, and I bet there were more. But yeah, there's like three main famous shipwrecks of uh, ships of this name. So uh, today's story was about the 1641 uh, vessel. So... I hope you found that interesting. Uh, I had wanted to do kind of a piratey, shipwrecky episode <laughs> for a while now, and I just came across this story, and I was like, "Oh, this is this is too much to resist." So uh, I very much hope you enjoyed it. Well, this has been bite-sized history, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I was Nick, your host. Listener mail can be sent to bitesizedhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Oh, and leave a review on iTunes. Once again, thank you so, so much for listening. Goodbye.